0: Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis, I'm Gil Gross, it is the very special, mid-major edition of Monday Match Analysis. There have been disappointments, there have been surprises, and there are some very tantalizing quarterfinal matchups to discuss. Uh, what, uh, What a week it's been. Rarely. Will there be nothing to talk about uh, after the after one week of Grand Slam tennis, and and this is certainly uh, no exception. So uh, let's get going. I think that this will serve as uh, a good way to reflect on the first week at the Aussie Down Under, the Happy Slam. Gotta love it. Brilliant crowds. Uh, I just one quarterfinal matchup has been completed. So I'll be recapping one. I'll be I'll be previewing the other three. Um, but first, before we get to all that quarterfinal jazz, uh, I want to th- look back at uh, what has already went down here. And first, let's talk about some of the some of the players who have been pleasantly surprising and have put in better performances than uh, one could have expected. And I'm gonna go in order. So I'm gonna go. Uh, number five will be, Surprising, but not quite as surprising as number one, who, in my opinion, will be the most surprising player of uh, the Australian Open. And once again, just to reinforce where I'm going with this, surprising is a good thing, not a bad thing. So it's not like disappointments will be the upsets. These are the guys who have overachieved, um, or I shouldn't say overachieved. They've done very well. Uh, Number five are two Aussies that went a little bit further than people expected. Alex Bolt and Alexi Poparin. Both of these guys, uh, in front of their home crowds, had really nice runs. So Poparin went through Misha Zverev in the first round. Then he was the beneficiary of the uh, Dominic team retirement in the second round and then in the third round he played Luca Pui, and he pushed him to five sets. Alex Bolt upset Jack, Jack Sock. It, it was an upset. I, I hesitate to say upset because Sock has been has, has struggled immensely in the last 12 months. But if you looked at, at the odds, for example, it, it wasn't upset. And then, here's a major upset. He beat Gilles Simon, and Simon was playing fantastic tennis. Uh, and then he played Zverev, gave Zverev a bit of a run for his money. Um, or wait, oh, excuse me. No, Zverev distinguished him fairly easily. But still, a nice run by Alex Bolt. So uh, so the Aussies come in at number five of the top five surprises. Number four, I've already mentioned his name, Luka Puy, Through to a quarterfinal. A lot of people expected him... To do more damage after he upset uh, Nadal at the U.S. Open. Since then, he hasn't really taken the strides that some people expected. Uh, but here he is, back in a in a Slam quarterfinal. So, uh, Luca Pui, um, I believe the thirty-one seed in Australia. Let's check that. No, twenty-eight. The twenty-eight seed here in Australia is sort of the quarterfinals. Let's see some. Um, Honestly, he's had a fantastic draw because he, he, he was in the uh, Dominic team section of the draw, and uh, honestly, he hasn't really beaten anyone. Overly impressive. He went through Kukush, uh Kakushkin, Martyr, and uh, Popper, and had to retire. And then, oh, and then he beat Chorich. So that that was the tough one, the the last one. At number three, Milos Raonic. Raonic through to a quarterfinal. Uh, I know it's not overly surprising, but if you look at at the gauntlet of players that that he's had to beat—Nick Kyrgios, Stan Wawrinka, PHR uh, P. Bear, and then Zverev—if if you combine all of the all of all of kind of the the prowess of of his opponents, it is quite the feat that Raonic, who came in as the 16th seed, came off. Uh, a year where he's he kind of stagnated last year and, and he's had health problems for the better part of the last two years, uh, Rounich has been a pleasant surprise and has a really good chance to go even further here. Number two, Pablo Carrena Busta. Another guy who went the wrong way last year and comes in here and has a good start to 2019. Carrena Busta. Took out Vashka in the second round, took out Fanini in the third round, and then gave Kane Ishikori a really tough match in the fourth round where he lost. Number one, no doubt about it, Francis Tiafo. I'm going to get much more into him when uh, once I get to his upcoming matchup with Nadal. I'll hold off on that. So top five surprises. Alex Bolt, Alexi poprin share one. Number four, Luka Pui, Milos Raonic, then Pablo Karina Busta, and Francis Tiafo Good job to, uh, to to all those guys for this incredible honor. Monday match analysis, midweek. Aussie Open, top five surprises. Top five disappointments. Number five. Let me get rid of my graphic here and replace it with a fresh one. Number five is Dominic Thiem. And the reason he's number five, he'd be higher, is... He had to withdraw in his match against uh, Alexei Popperin due to illness. So you give him the benefit of the doubt and you say, okay, well, you know, team fell under the weather and that's not his fault. He was down two sets to love, two zero, two, uh, two love in that match. So um, he, he was well on his way to to, to losing it uh, before he pulled out. And team had a really nice win against Benoit Paire. That was one of the best matches of the first round. So not... Incredibly disappointing, but a bit disappointing because we do expect big things out of Dominic Team in twenty nineteen. Number four, Marin Cilic, losing to a very in form Roberto Bautista Good. Uh So you know he just took out Karen Hatchnoff but RBA did. RBA had just taken out uh, Karen Hatchnoff in straight sets, so he's a great player. But uh, I'm holding Cilic to the standard that. You know he's going to be a uh, a fringe top five player in the world. So I'd say an an early loss one at a tournament where you made the finals last year. uh, I'd say that that is worthy of making this top five list. Although once again, team along with Chilich, not incredibly surprising losses, but still Chilich needs to beat RBA there if if he if he wants to. keep his standing as a contender outside the big three. Number three, Alexander Zverev. It's not who he lost to. Raonic is a great opponent, but as I said in my video last night, it's how he lost. So that's all I need to say there. Alexander Zverev comes in at number three. Number two, the defending champion. Two years in a row, Roger Federer. Falling to Stefanos Pass once again, we might look back on that and say, okay, that actually wasn't that bad a loss. Stefano Tsitsipas, as of 30 minutes ago, maybe 20 minutes ago, is the youngest player since Djokovic in 2007 to make a slam semifinal. He's the real deal. However, as the second favorite uh, to win the Australian Open coming into the tournament, and Nadal fans, I know you you might disagree with that, but... What the, uh, that's what the odds said. As the second favorite, I'm going by the odds. Um, Federer losing in the fourth round certainly has to be a top two disappointment. It's not the number one disappointment uh, because that goes to Kevin Anderson just by, based on uh, how early he lost in the second round. Um, again, against a guy who is now in the quarterfinals, so it's not like TFO took out Anderson and lost in the next round. Uh, but I think I think Anderson um is probably the number one disappointment given given the fact that um he lost to I mean I'm just giving giving TFO a little bit more respect than or C T Pass a little bit more respect than TFO. Maybe those should be flipped. I don't know. It's funny because all five of those upsets, you could I guess I guess Anderson is number one because I was. Maybe maybe it's my personal bias by being uh, very surprised by that match. I don't know. None of those guys are like incredibly, shockingly disappointing, though. I don't know if you agree. But Anderson lost to. I mean, TFO's playing great. TT is playing great. Zverev lost to Rounich. Chilich um, lost to RBA. I mean, they all lost to really good players. And then team got injured. So I don't know. It's, it was a good first week for disappointments they they did very well. No one was too disappointing in my opinion. Okay. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done at Granger. We're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Time to move on. I think that that hopefully that was a good way to kind of look back on uh, on the first week. Let's talk about the match that just went down. Stefano Tsitsipas, uh defeats Roberto Bautista Agut. 75466476 um okay where should we begin first of all both these guys i think physically were at at different points in the match physically spent i mean it was it was really tough but both of them have have spent so much time on the court i'm going to lead with this don't underestimate the effect of the crowd on stefanos tsitsipas because in a match like that when both players are are really running on fumes it can really be the 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 home cr- court support that could kind of push a player energy-wise to the next level and and kind of just up the adrenaline that that small percentage point that could make the difference at the end in the fourth set tiebreak titi pas had so much adrenaline and energy flowing i mean he he was he, he really, um, I think, in my opinion, was energized by the crowd. Uh, we see players like Juan Martin Del Potro in New York um, is one of the prime examples. These guys, and it's a skill, they know how to use the energy of the crowd and absorb that and use it to their advantage. So I think Passa did well in this match. Um, basically, kind of catching these second wins and I think using the crowd... Um, as a motivating factor for for doing that. Let's see. See, uh, Bautista Agut was also, though, he had a chance to run away with this in the third set. Not that the match would have been over, but I think that we saw, once again, um, for the first time, Pass had a lapse. The first time I've seen him in this tournament have a big-time lapse when he went down in the third set. And it's funny because... He is just a talented enough player that he was slapping balls around, not thinking, not mentally there, but he he only went down one break, not two, and then, when he finally made this adjustment, and I want to talk about this this mid match adjustment where ssi realized okay look i'm I'm getting pushed around enough, I'm not attacking enough, I'm not playing aggressive enough uh i I need to take charge here, and if I'm going to go down, I at least need to go down swinging and he really did shift his level of aggression in this match midway through the third set he finally got some energy he finally it, it seemed like just kind of got out of this mental rut but I'd point out two things one great job adjusting mid-match by Pas, and two great job only going down one break while really kind of I guess completely losing focus He was able to hold serve twice and that's just his forehand, his, his, uh, his serve. Those two shots are, are such great weapons for him that he can kind of be mentally off somewhere else and maybe still managing to hold serve a few times. And then also the, the fight should not be understated either. Bautista Agut hit a wall though, um, at the end of the third, and then throughout, throughout the fourth set, Agut wasn't missing. He wasn't moving, but but he he couldn't really move the entire fourth set. The reason he was able to force a tie break is because he he never missed a shot, and and he was really just he was hitting his forehand so well that entire set, but he wasn't able to be who he is. And that's a player that can scramble and, and win points with his defense when, when necessary. Boy, does he remind me of David Ferrer. Oh my God. I mean, his backhand, it's like a ball machine. His forehand is impossible to read and incredibly precise. And his footwork makes it that so um, he's generally able to always find his forehand in situations when uh, where it's at least feasible to do so. His serve, by the way, is even better than Ferrer's, in my opinion. So, um, what a run for RBA and what a win from, uh, from Pass, following up, ha- not having the Federer hangover. I mentioned he had the laps, but uh, just overcoming that, I mean, he continues to show the qualities of a champion. He does. By the way, I didn't mention it. At the end of this video, Um, I am going to read one comment, and I know I've gotten... I've been doing a, a few midweek videos, and I've gotten a lot of comments. But uh, there's only there's I'm I'm only gonna read one, and I think you can guess the topic. It's one thing that I I can't I should talk about right now, and that's Federer playing on clay. So that's gonna be at the end. That's how I'll end it. Let's talk about Nadal versus TFO, but I want to start by talking about TFO in general. Francis has. I mean, I am. I'm so. I'm so proud of him, honestly, um, because this is exactly what American tennis needs. So I'm. I'm happy for that. But in regards to his game, I think he's he's figured out how talented he is, and I think he's he's using aspects of his game that he's he's just for some reason. He's never utilized to such an extent. He's going to the net so often. He's mixing it up and using way more variety. A lot of drop shots. Using his feel so often. You know, drop shots, lobs, volleys, uh, you know, touch, slice down the line. And then he he can really destroy, he can rip his forehand like nobody's business. I'd like to see uh, RPM numbers because I bet he's up there with Nadal, Sock, and Edmund for some of the highest RPM on tour on his forehand. And I people like to, um, it's a very popular thing to to go on a, on a keyboard and type in YouTube comments how uh, oh his technique's terrible he'll never win Well the forehand's great so I don't want to hear it about Francis Tfo's forehand technique it, I mean come on guys it, it, the forehand is it's fine and I mean if the shot works it works I don't know why people seem to have um, an allergy to some um, unconventional technique Karen Hatchinoff gets gets the same kind of criticism. And maybe maybe when it's rushed, uh, it can it can kind of be a problem. But his forehand's fine. His um his backhand is pretty consistent, pretty precise, he can take it more on the rise. But ultimately what we're seeing, and and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that physically, he's becoming to he's becoming truly elite on a physical level with it, with his fitness, his movement, his strength from the back of the court. I, I don't think it's going to be long before we're looking at Francis Tiafo as a guy who can hang with anyone physically. And I think he has the potential to be, to be a real titan of, of fitness and endurance. I think if you've probably heard me this is the last thing uh, before I move on to the, to, the, to the match itself. You've probably heard me criticize TFO's fight last year. I mean, this is just a different guy now. Uh, he's, he's clearly had some kind of epiphany. He's playing com- completely inspired and he couldn't be fighting any harder than he is. I mean, he is battling point in and point out and uh, it's beautiful to watch. So this is all good. He's so talented. He's got amazing hands. He's got a huge forehand. He's a great athlete. He's got a good serve. What, what is there not to love? There's not much not to love. Uh, with that being said, Rafa Nadal has been the best player in this tournament so far. Nobody's playing better than Rafa. And what I expect to see Rafa do is I expect to see him pick on TFO's backhand. Here's one prototype that Rafa is going to feast on over and over again, a righty with a weak backhand. And by the way, if you can be a player who learns to feast on that playstyle, if you master the attack of the weak righty backhand, you're going to win a lot of matches on every level, maybe a little less so, the the ATP professional tour, but uh, if if you're a young player and you figure out what patterns uh, what can can work for you when it comes to attacking the weak righty backhand, uh, you're going to win a lot of matches. And without going into more detail than that, Rafa Nadal is obviously a master at attacking the righty backhand with his heavy topspin crosscourt forehands, um, which Kick up off the court, not as much, by the way, uh, on on this um, surface. But I don't really think it's going to be about the kick. I don't think it's about how high the ball kicks up. I think it's simply going to be about uh, the fact that T.F.O.'s backhand isn't uh, a very heavy shot. And I just think that, similar to what Rafa did against Dimitrov, he's gonna attack the T.F.O. backhand, and he's gonna use his forehand. To take advantage of just the lack of heaviness that TFO um, displays off that wing. Now, a counter to that would be TFO can can hit it pretty low. He can kind of skid it off the court, which he does. Similar to like I don't know, like a Daniil Medvedev or something. Um, TFO can can keep his backhand pretty low, but uh, for the most part. I feel like uh, I feel like Rafa is gonna really pick on that wing, and TFO he's not gonna be able to do much damage from the back of the court with his backhand. He he can he can crush his backhand, but uh, not not on a consistent level like a like a Djokovic. That should go without saying, or a Stan. I don't know. That's what I'm imagining right now, though. I'm I'm seeing Nadal picking on on the backhand wing. And kind of just wearing out TFO. TFO is probably going to do a lot of running in this match. Probably going to do a lot of defending. And uh, I think he's going to ball out, honestly. I think TFO is going to play well. I think he's going to mix it up. The cat and mouse game doesn't scare me uh, with Nadal. I think Nadal plays the cat and mouse game pretty well. TFO has had a lot of success trying to, to get creative. And and to, to mix in a lot of droppers. Rafa won't have trouble with that. TFO is going to the net a lot. Rafa probably has the greatest passing shots of all time. I know I stirred things up. Um, I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago. I think it was two weeks ago when I said Djokovic has the greatest defense of all time. And the Rafa fans go, ah, that's not true. Well, I think Nadal has the greatest passing shots of all time. And now the Djokovic fans will probably be up in arms. Um, But that's how it goes. So it'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to it. I think TFO plays well. I think Nadal plays too well. Djokovic, Nishikori, 16-2 head-to-head. I often refer to Nishikori when these two play as Djokovic light because they play tons of neutral baseline rallies, and there's just nothing that Nishikori does better than Djokovic. He just, he he's kind of a... A miniature Djokovic, not and I don't mean that in terms of size, although he is smaller. I mean that just in terms of just the assets. The speed, the flexibility, the backhands, the forehands, the return, the serve. Everything is a little bit worse. And he's the same kind of player. He can against 99% of the tour, Nishikori thrives. By, by just being a, a more of solid baseliner. And someone who can hurt you from both wings. Someone who is really, really quick. Someone who has a huge weapon in that two-handed backhand. Someone who can do damage with the forehand. Someone who doesn't make a lot of unforced errors. All those things are true. But the, the margin when these two play... Play is just very large because they play so many rallies, and over the course of the match, that the the advantages that Djokovic has just become very much accentuated, in my opinion, because they play just the same play style, and it's a play style that that just doesn't lend itself to many surprises. So uh, Djokovic has won, I want to say, fifteen straight. 14 straight. And uh, what I wanted to do, by the way, which I didn't do for the last one, I wanted to go through um, who everyone's played, just just so we can get a sense of that. So Rafa went through Duckworth, Ebden, Demonor, and Burdich and had didn't have any trouble with, with any of them. TFO, Gunnar Soarin in the first round, good win for for Francis pretty easy there uh upset Kevin Anderson in four god he was unbelievable unreal in that match so good at the net in that match i mean he he really won he won the match because he was playing with the whole court and anderson who was really struggling with his volleys couldn't put away points and just was was just kind of it was almost like Anderson was trapped in a box five feet behind the baseline, and TFO had the was thriving through in, in every single zone throughout the court. wherever he was he was thriving, where, where Anderson was just really put out of his comfort zone by TFO. reminded me of how Fetter makes big men uncomfortable. TFO did the same thing. Uh, then he played Seppi. I missed that match, but good five-set win. And then Dimitrov, once again, I mean, TFO showed so much fight and so much fitness in this match, and uh, it was really a dogfight that TFO came out uh, through in five sets. Uh, with Djokovic and Nishikori, Djokovic went through Kruger in the first, Sanga in the second in a match that, that he admitted he was a little bit nervous, took four sets. Shapovalov was a four-setter, I mean, but really the three sets that he won was like no sweat. No sweat for Djokovic at all. And uh, a 6-love in the fourth. And then Medvedev, what Medvedev tried to do was just grind Djokovic out. And Djokovic, um, you know, it, it was tough. Medvedev played great, but eventually Djokovic... Medvedev ran the gas tank empty and Djokovic still had a lot left in the tank. Probably a product of of just the way that Djokovic is able to consistently... Um, consistently make Medvedev do more running and just just dictate more points and do so without making any errors when when Med you know Medvedev th- shows incredible levels of consistency as well but uh, when when he does it he just doesn't he just has to work harder and that that, that was really the difference in that match plus there's all obviously at this juncture uh, a fitness deficit between Djokovic and Medvedev as well Nishikori uh went through Polish qualifier. I I can't pronounce his name. I did watch the match, but I me- I watched it on mute. But uh maybe Masherzak? I don't think so. Anyway, Polish qualifier, five sets, nearly lost. Ivo Karlovic, five sets. Zhao Souza, fairly easy match. Then Karina Busta, fifth set tiebreak. Nishikori has been on the court for so long, um, and and that's kind of one of the issues I see. I foresee for Nishikori, he he really has to put a lot of wear and tear on his body over the course of two weeks, and 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 that's going to be a problem for him if he wants to make another Slam final like he did in uh, 2014. Uh, at the U.S. Open. So this is a match where his gas tank might be empty. Uh, and I think Djokovic takes it fairly easily. Raonic and Puy. Raonic leads the head-to-head 3-0. This one, um, to me... Pui won't have a lot of opportunities in this match. Rounich never gives his opponents many opportunities and I just have not I still don't trust Luca Puy uh, to be consistent and to not to not gift away the few opportunities that he will receive if any you know if he plays well enough to earn himself opportunities. I don't trust Luca Pui to to not make an error in in a big spot. So that's just where I stand with him. He needs to kind of prove me otherwise. I'm just, to be honest, I'm just, I'm not a huge fan of Puy's game against uh, against the the elite players in, in the sport. And that's a really nice win against Borna Coric. I couldn't watch that match either. Uh, that the time difference is a killer, as I'm sure my my uh, my Australian friends know when it's U.S. Open time and that the time difference is a killer for them. It's it's really not easy, but I do the best I can. I'm not sure what, what exactly happened in that match, but uh, I don't trust Luka Pui. I trust Milos Raonic a lot more. A lot of people are saying that, that Raonic could win the tournament. It's like a, a popular kind of hot take right now. Raonic still has a lot of deficiencies in his game. He really does. I mean, on the backhand wing, and he tries to run around his backhand as much as possible, but he's not that quick or graceful with his footwork when he does it. So to me, two things can happen if you're able to successfully attack his backhand corner. One, you will you will um, draw some errors with Raonic trying to run around and just not having good enough footwork to do so. Two... You will find that Raonic will take himself out of position often, and if you are a a really talented, um, if you're really talented at changing direction, you can take advantage when when Raonic goes inside out. So that that I would foresee being a problem, like if he faces Djokovic in the semis. Um, And then three, when he does hit a backhand, it's it's very often slice. And there's no problem with slice backhands. You know, I mean, it, it, sliced backhands are are a part of tennis and they should be a part of tennis. But when you are an offensive player like Milos Raonic, when you're a player who doesn't have really the movement to, to play a lot of defense, it's just not ideal when you're slicing most of your backhands. So I don't think Raonic is Grand Slam champion caliber right now. I, and then the, the last thing I'll say is... He, he still hasn't been tested mentally in, in a really big spot late in a Grand Slam in a while, and I've always found that Raonic is a candidate to get really, really nervous and make errors that he shouldn't. With all that being said, he's serving tremendously, he's crushing his forehand, he's, he's doing everything he needs to do to give himself a chance to succeed. And I like him in this match. So that leaves us with Titi Pass against Rafa. And that's a matchup we saw, I believe, in Toronto. And that's a matchup that once again Rafa is is would would be able to. I'm not gonna. I don't want to preview it right now. I'm gonna zip my lips. I'm gonna zip my lips. That's another video. Um, and then I'd have Raonic against Djokovic. Yeah, I, I. I'm really tempted to to keep yapping my mouth, but I'm just gonna zip my lips. Um, let's go to Roger on clay before we wrap this thing up. Here it is. Hey, Gil. Do you think Roger playing the clay season means that this is his last year? Otherwise, great analysis as always. Thank you, Basile. Um, No, I don't. I think that Roger Federer wants to play clay because he misses the French Open. I think he he misses these stops, and I think he thinks it's going to be fun. And I think he's at a point in his career where maybe... It's time to – now, here's what I do think. I think it means he's less confident about Wimbledon because I feel that Roger Federer's legacy is very important to him, and I think if Federer felt that he had a great chance to win Wimbledon if he skips the clay court season, but he doesn't have a great chance to win Wimbledon if he plays the clay court season, I think he'd skip the clay court season because I think he – Wants to give himself the best chance that he possibly can to win Wimbledon. To me, this is—he probably felt a little bit crappy last year about skipping the clay court season and then getting upset at Wimbledon in the quarters by Anderson after going to two sets to love. I know personally, for me, that would be a bummer, uh, especially if you're if you see skipping the clay court season as a sacrifice. If he has to do it from his for for his body. Um, that's kind of a different story, but, but it seems to me like, like Fetter was kind of doing that, not as a means to stay healthy, but as a means to rest for, to, to make a push to win Wimbledon. That's why he always played two warmups before Wimbledon, right? Which I imagine he would adjust if he plays the clay court season. So, uh, I think Roger is doing it because he misses it. What do you guys think of that? Uh... It's fun. He wants to. He wants to go to Paris again. He wants to play the French again. At the end of the day, Federer, Federer doesn't need to do this anymore. Federer is only doing this because he wants to. Right at the end of the day, Federer, Federer can can hang up the racket right now. He's doing this because he wants to, and I think he just wants to play clay. Because I think he misses it. Whatever the reason is, I think he'll be honest about it. And uh, I think um, he'll, he'll, he'll shed more and more light on it. But strategically, I don't think that there's any reading into this. Other than to say maybe he doesn't feel so confident that he's the favorite to win Wimbledon anymore. Let me know what you think. Look out for preview videos. Um, and, uh, and next week, next week, it's time to grind it out. Big week, ladies and gentlemen. Let's go. Enjoy the tennis. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel.